Uh, our text this morning uh, will be, uh, will, is really, is verses 25 through 33, but for uh, the sake of continuity, I'm going to begin uh, the reading in verse 22. So uh, we won't be really covering ground that we did last week, but the passage will help us to uh, launch into what uh, Paul is communicating uh, this morning for us. Romans 9, verse 22. Hear the word of our God. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called? not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of sons of Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that comes by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The word of our God. Let's pray. Our holy God, we, we come this day that you have made for us, calling us to rest not only from labors, but rest from our pretense and to rest in your grace. And as we come to your word, I pray that we would rest in your wisdom that we would incline our ears, our mind, employ our minds, and open our hearts, that we would hear what you have to say, that it would shape the way we think, and therefore the way that we live, that it would enable us to become more and more like Christ, and also enable us to bring you pleasure. Lord, be at work by the power of your Spirit, even now as we consider this word the glory of your name, and the good of your people, and the world around us. We pray in Christ. Amen. Well, I have titled this message, The Good, the Bad, the Ugly, and God. Now, for some of you, the title will bring to mind the old Clint Eastwood spaghetti western, and those of you who are familiar with that film may be wondering, so how in the world is he going to take the theme of that 
and then connect it to the gospel? And that would be a really good question, but I have absolutely no intention of doing that. And particularly as I thought about it, was not really thinking so much of the cast of characters that we find in that story, but I was thinking of the cast of characters to whom Paul has written uh, the letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome, and to us. And I couldn't think of any better description to the people that God calls to himself than the good, the bad, and the ugly. As Paul is writing this letter, he's writing specifically to the church in Rome, and as we said a few times as we started this series, Paul's purpose is to write a missionary support letter to let them know that he's planning on going to Spain to take the gospel to the people there so that they too might have the hope that the people in Rome and other parts of, uh, of, of the world had already heard, and to help them understand what he planned to do in his mission he writes this explanation of the gospel that has become the greatest theological treatise that has ever been written. But the people to whom he was writing, the church in Rome, was comprised of a wide variety of people, people who had come from a variety of different backgrounds. Now, the majority of the church early on probably had been Jewish people. And at the time of the writing of the letter, they may still have been a majority of people that had Jewish backgrounds that were part of the church. But over time, particularly because it was in Rome, the, the, the capital of the world, more or less, at the time, more and more people began to hear the gospel, trust in the message of Jesus Christ, trust in Christ himself, believe, and then become part of this body. And as a result, the church was comprised of people from a variety of backgrounds, uh, different ways of thinking, people in different stages, different places in their spiritual journey, and therefore bringing to the table uh, different ways of thinking, different, different things. It was, a, it was a mush, and it was a mess. And at times, the differences that are often celebrated were also points of contention, points of, of tension, because not everybody was on the same page. The people that were in the church, though they came from different backgrounds, were largely categorized in two ways. There were the Jews who represented the, the religious people. And then we see written to here the Gentiles, referred to, Paul refers to in, in verse 24, which is a, a broad category that basically means anybody who's not Jewish. Many of them were irreligious, others of them were pagan. And so bring their baggage of their upbringing to the table, even as the Jewish people who didn't believe they had any baggage, the religious people didn't believe they had any baggage, brought their own baggage to the table because the church in Rome is not a whole lot unlike the church as it exists today. Now, we have now categories of the Jew and Gentile for our church. And in our church particularly, we have a lot of things that are in common. Most of our backgrounds are, are somewhat the same. Uh, most of us have a similar kind of lifestyle. We might be a, a little too homogenous uh, in, in certain ways, but we do come from different geographical points on, on the map. And as a result, we bring some of our own cultural things. And, and sometimes that is, is good, but sometimes it, it leads to misunderstanding. And one of the other things that we share with the church in Rome is we tend to think in the same way that they do. We, even culturally, not just our church, but culturally, we just have this idea somewhat. It's, it's embedded in, in our mind. Uh, those who are religious tend to be good. And those who are perhaps uh, from 
non-religious backgrounds, well, they have their own way of living, and sometimes those who are religious would consider that, consider that bad. And so with that thinking that they had in Rome, and even that we might be inclined to, uh, to think, Paul's writing this letter, and he's saying some incredibly shocking things. Particularly to those who were religious, to those who were Jewish, Paul is writing throughout this letter things that would have made them stop and, and wonder. In, verse, in chapters 9 through 11, Paul anticipates that what he had said would have been shocking, and so he's answering questions. He's anticipating questions, and then he's answering them, giving an explanation of not only what he means, but he's rooting them and showing that what he's saying is not just his idea. He's not trying to pioneer something. He is saying exactly what the Scripture says. And in so doing, he's offending his own people, the, the Jewish people, the religious people. He's, he's offending, shocking the, the good people, even as he may be comforting and encouraging the, the bad and the ugly. Particularly what Paul has said is that not all Israel is Israel. So just because somebody has Abraham's blood running through their veins, they have his DNA, does not mean that they are counted in the number of the household of God. That was shocking, scandalous, offensive. And I have to wonder if it would have come from somebody who was not Jewish himself and had not achieved as much in, uh, in the faith as Paul had prior to his conversion to Christ, if it would have just been outright rejected. And then, not only does he say that not everybody who is Jewish is saved, he starts talking about these promises that God makes, and he's applying them to people without regard of whether they were Jewish or whether they'd come from pagan or non-religious backgrounds, and simply because they are in Christ Jesus, he's saying, here is the promise, and there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because if God owns you, if you belong to God, nobody is going to take you from him, and nothing is going to separate you from that love. And Paul recognizes how this is going to sound in the ears and in the hearts of the people to whom he's writing. And so he begins the explanation. But with each explanation, as we see in chapter 9, he kind of digs his hole a little bit deeper. He teaches something and, and answers the question, but then he begs another question. And here now, having said that those who belong to God are those whom God has chosen, that God, who is sovereign over all, has the right to choose the people who are his, and he has chosen Israel for a purpose, and out of Israel some will be saved, but others are not saved. And some who are never part of Israel, they don't convert and become Jewish before they become followers of Jesus Christ. And they will have the same benefits as the people of God, the people to whom all these promises are made. It, it just seemed unthinkable. And so Paul writes these words that we look at this morning. What if? What if all along God has chosen a people and he is patient despite their unfaithfulness, because he wants to accomplish something through these people, even in accordance with his promise, not just for them, but for the benefit of other people to whom he hadn't seemed to have expressed promise in the first place. The language Paul uses is what if he is patient with the, the vessels of wrath in order to give benefit to those who are to have the benefit 
or vessels of his mercy. The people who are religious, the good people, are finding this difficult to swallow. But what we see in this passage, even as we see throughout all of Romans, and what Paul is going to show us is that the gospel that brings us into communion with Christ Jesus is fundamentally and radically different than any religion or any irreligion. It's not that one is better and then something else makes up for it. It is something entirely different than either religion or non-religion. And as we look here, we see what Paul does is he appeals to the Old Testament. It kind of what he's saying is, if you'd actually read your Bibles, you would have already known this stuff, but let's look at some of these, couple of these stories, and he appeals to two prophets, to Hosea and to Isaiah, and draws out what they have said on the very subject that he's going to deal with. And what we see are two very clear points that Paul draws out in order to answer the questions that had arisen because of Paul saying, God chooses whom he's going to choose. And the first is that the gospel is radically different than religion or non-religion. The gospel is something entirely different. And then second is that sometimes religion, sometimes goodness, actually makes it more difficult to appreciate and to, and to embrace the gospel. Those are the two things that Paul is saying to us as we look at this passage this morning as he wraps up the end of, of chapter 9. And so let's look at the first point first, where Paul says the gospel is something radically different. To its core, it is something that is entirely different. And to make his case, Paul points to the prophet Hosea, who was a prophet to Israel around in the 800-something uh, B.C. Now, before I jump in, I'm just curious, how many of you have ever read the book of Hosea? Um, full, full all the way through. All right, I was expecting like six. We got at least 12. But anyway, that's... Uh, well, just so that we're all on the same page, let me give you the background of, of, of Hosea, because in many ways, Hosea is an absolutely bizarre, bizarre story, uh, but it was there for a reason. Hosea was a prophet, one who was faithful to God, called by God, and what, Hosea, what God told Hosea to do was that he was to go out and he was to marry a prostitute named Gomer, which should have been Hosea's first clue that life wasn't going to be the way he hoped it had been. And then he was to set up a house, and he was to have a home, with, and, and to have a family, have kids, and to live his life with uh, this woman who he had married out of, uh, out of prostitution. And, and so Hosea and Gomer do have two kids, and the Lord says, here's the names that you're going to give them. Uh, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Not My People. And you're going to have a daughter and call her No Mercy or Unloved. I don't know what their little league jerseys names on the back would look like, but, you know, it's just un unusual. But this was the names that God was going to put. And God had said from the very beginning, uh, the reason that you're going to do this is because this is going to be a reflection of, of the way that I relate to my people. God is identifying himself throughout the book of Hosea as the husband of a, of a wayward wife. And so Hosea does exactly what God has calls him to do. He, he marries Gomer. They have these, these two kids. And then eventually Gomer becomes unfaithful. She commits adultery and then leaves the household entirely and re-enters a life of, of prostitution. 
And what God instructs Hosea to do is to go pay off all the debts that she accrues to free her from the one who now has her in, in sex trafficking, owns her, and then to call her back to himself, just to continue to invite her to come back, to extend forgiveness and to swallow her debts, and then just say, come back, come back and be loved. And Hosea is a living picture, a living metaphor of God who likens himself because that's what the church, that's what his people, that's what Israel was like. They were the bride that was constantly looking after other idols, other gods, and they were unfaithful. And even as he loved them and as he redeemed them and as he provides for them, you know, they come back for time, but their eye is always wandering and they're always looking for something else and always leaving the God who loves them. And the other thing that he's trying to say is, look, here's what I'm doing and here's what I I promise I redeem my people and I will cover your debts and I'm continually calling them back to me. It's an incredible story. It's a beautiful, if not bizarre, picture. And in Paul's day, the the Jewish people loved the story of Hosea. They, They loved the metaphor, understand what God is like, also because it kind of gave them cover or cushion for their own failings. And they love the promise that God loves his people no matter what. But even as the people in that day loved the story, they made a big mistake in their reading of it because they looked at the story and thought that it was about them, but they didn't see themselves as as Gomer. Just like us, our tendency is to, to read the Bible and to, to you know, make ourselves the, the heroes of the story. You know, when you read the story of, of, the, um, of, of the woman who was caught in adultery, you know, we read that passage and, you know, we tend to think maybe we've learned, okay, well, we're the woman caught in adultery. We never look at ourselves as one of the people throwing the stones, uh, the hypocrites, unaware of our own sin, judging, merciless. We like to be on Jesus' side. We recognize sometimes we are the, are the victims, maybe the victims of our own, own mistakes. But, but we read the Bible and we make ourselves the center. I mean, how many of you grew up, and this is not asking for a show of hands, but how many of you grew up hearing the whole story of David as, you know, you've got giants in your life, so take this stone and slay the giants, never recognizing that you can't do that, then we need somebody to do that. We're Israel. We're the army that has been given everything and still we can't seem to defeat our own enemies. And so we need somebody else, somebody who is unlikely, somebody to come in our place, and that Jesus is the David who comes and has slayed the ultimate enemy, which is death and sin. He dies for it. And then, in so doing, when he rises again, he, he kills it so that we are able, like Israel, to live free. We tend to identify with the heroes of the story, just like the, the people were doing there. And so while they loved the story, they were missing the point that the story was ultimately not just about them and the mercy that they might receive, but it's about God and what God has been doing from the very beginning. Because the covenant that God made with Abraham formed a people of Israel and made great promises that God was going to bless them And he would bless the people who blessed them. He would curse those who cursed them for the purpose of blessing the entire world through them. But from the very beginning, the entire world was in God's view. 
God had made a plan to redeem a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Israel was going to be the instrument. They were going to be the beneficiaries as, they, as God carried out this plan. But God had always had in view that he was going to call other people who were not part of Israel. And so Paul is looking at Hosea, and as we look at these verses, we, we see what he's saying. Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where, I, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And, and what Paul was drawing, he's saying, look, this is, this is, Hosea was predicting exactly what I was just saying. God is calling you people from everywhere, people who are, are technically not my people, the Gentiles who are not my people, but they are my people. Some of them are my people, and that's been the point from the very beginning. To those who I have not shown mercy, uh, from some, I'm, I'm going to show mercy to them because I'm calling them, and they will be my people. This was absolutely stunning because to a good religious person, you had to be religious. You had to do the right things. And now here's God who seems almost promiscuous in saying, I'm going to give grace to people who have never been part of the people of promise, at least so far as any external evidence. And then he goes and he brings Isaiah and he says even further, so if it's not bad enough that I'm going to include people into this household, uh, here's what Isaiah says. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as sands on the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. In other words, though, yeah, I promised Abraham that his descendants would be like the grains of sand on the seashore. I don't know how many that is, but it's too many to count. And God had, in a sense, fulfilled that because the descendants, his descendants through Israel were just very, very plentiful, his biological descendants through Israel. But God also had in mind the spiritual descendants of Abraham, and as we saw a couple of weeks ago, and as Paul writes elsewhere in Galatians, if you are in Christ, you then are an heir of Abraham. You now are part of Abraham's family. And so those who have come to faith in Christ also are Abraham's spiritual descendants. They're part of that great number of sand. But the ones to whom the promise was made, the biological descendants of Abraham, out of that number, Isaiah had said long before this, eh, only, only, a, only a, a, a remnant are going to be saved, as he said earlier. Not all Israel is Israel. Not everybody who shares Abraham's DNA is really part of the family of God. And Paul is making his case in a, in a shocking way. And he's reminding them of what was said from the beginning, what had been prophesied through time, that somehow in their preoccupation with themselves, their idea that somehow religious people are good and non-religious people are bad and only good people uh, can, can know God. And Paul's blowing a hole in that whole idea. And he goes on and explains 
Why? Why this is the case? Because as he's laying it down and saying, those that God calls, he calls by the gospel. They, they come by faith, and we'll see that expressed here in a moment. Not by genealogy, not by performance, not by good attitude, good behavior, and good doctrine. They come by faith in God's gift of salvation, which comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's in believing the gospel that somebody is made right, that they become, they are part of the family of God. Many of them will be Jewish people, but many of the Jewish people are not. Many of them will be religious people, but an awful lot of religious people are not. And many and perhaps most are people who come from outside of Israel and who come from backgrounds that would make religious church people think of them as bad or ugly. And the reason for that is really the second point that we, we see expressed in the verses 30 through 33. It's because sometimes being good, being religious, makes it difficult to appreciate and to appropriate the gospel. Paul begins in verse 30, what shall we say? I mean, he, he knows that he's saying some stunning things here to the people. What shall we say to this? And then he summarizes in a way that, you know, when you, when you look at it, it's kind of like, yeah, well, that's just what you said, but that's all the more bizarre when you put it that way. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. But Israel, verse 31, who pursued it did not succeed in getting it. I, I mean, think about that. And it kind of goes back to last week. That doesn't seem fair. I mean, that just seems absolutely ludicrous. People who weren't even trying, people who didn't even want it, they have it. And those who were pursuing it, those who were trying, they didn't get it. I don't know if you have anything in your life that kind of is that way. Sometimes it's quite irritating. You know, you get people who don't even really seem to care, and they, they have what you really, really want. And as I thought this week about things in my own life, not necessarily anything right now, but I thought probably the best example for me was uh, for most of my early life and even into early in college, I just, I just wanted desperately to go and play in the NFL. There was a problem. I wasn't good enough. And then even in the time when I was of age where I could have been there, there were guys who were drafted and played in the NFL who didn't play high school ball, didn't play college ball. They weren't pursuing it. I don't know what they were doing. I poured in, you know, a good 12, I never knew the math, 12 uh, years of my life, uh, 15 years of my life. And I couldn't get what I wanted. And people who didn't try at all got it. I mean, that just, you know, that doesn't chafe you. I don't know what, I mean, I don't think you care whether I made it to the NFL or not, but that's a whole other, other point. I mean, Carolyn was glad that I didn't because I didn't leave town, but that was, um, uh, but we, we all have, or many of us have things in our lives, that, things that we, that we wanted, things that we work for, and, and we just didn't get that. 
Maybe it was, I want to get into this school, and you know, you worked really, really hard, and you didn't get into your school of first choice. But this other person, they barely studied, and somehow, you know, they get a perfect score on the SAT. I thought they were a moron, and all of a sudden, we find out they're a genius, and that doesn't seem right. They don't read. I didn't even think they could read, and they're, you know, they're going to Harvard, uh, you know. So, it just, you know, we can understand when we think about those situations as to what Israel was feeling when they were, what the Jewish people in the church were thinking here. You know, there was a part of them was probably glad. I'm glad these people that came out of non-religious backgrounds are here and they're trusting in Jesus Christ. And now that they're exposed to good people like us, they can learn the good Jewish patterns of things. But I don't, I don't understand because there's a lot of other people, a lot of other people who are my family, a lot of other people who are from my tribe, and they're... They're not embracing this, and, and here Paul is saying they're outside. They're not even beneficiaries. They're not going to be considered righteous, no matter how hard they strive. And so why did the Jewish people, why did the religious people not achieve what they were striving for, and yet people who weren't even trying were able to receive it? And Paul tells us here, because the, the religious people, the, the good people, tend to pursue righteousness, but not by faith alone. Paul says here in, in this passage, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. See, one of the problems that good people have the biggest problem as it comes spiritually that good people have is that they perform. And in their performing, they are subtly trying to put God in their debt. They do the things that are laid out, check off the checklist, and maybe even do things for extra credit. And then they sometimes, subtly, not just sometimes, often, kind of lift them up to God and saying, look, see what I did? Particularly when life doesn't go the way they think that it should. When they see somebody else getting what they wanted and they're not getting what they want. When things are going difficult for them, but some people seem to have a life of ease. The tendency is to, God, look, didn't I do this and this and this? I I don't understand because they were doing the things, but they were doing them in part to put God in their debt. Now, I want to be clear. It's not in the doing of good things that is at all a problem. Doing good things, generally speaking, is good. But I think that it's important that we regularly remember what Martin Luther said is God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does, but God doesn't need them. So the fact that you do good things or even keep the rules that God lays out are not a basis of appeal as if God now owes you something. Keeping the law is good, but if you're going to lift it up to God, isn't it funny how we only lift up the portions of the law that we kept and not the portions where we break? 
And I've used this illustration before, but I think it's an appropriate one. Just imagine I'm going on a, a long journey somewhere, so driving to see my family in Tennessee, and I get pulled over somewhere around Roanoke because I'm going above the speed limit. So as I get pulled over for doing 65 in a 55 zone, which I still don't quite understand why it's only 55 there, but that's besides the point, and I will acknowledge I chafe that they make me slow down when I'm making such good progress, but I'm guilty. From the time I entered into that county and the speed limit dropped to 55, I've been going over the speed limit, they got me. So what do I tell the officer? Look, officer, I've already been driving for four hours not over the speed limit. I've been keeping the law. So you have no right to give me a ticket now that you've caught me not keeping the law. We know that is foolish. And yet as we speak with God, when things don't go the way that we want, when somehow it feels like our account is called due, We say, God, but didn't I do this, this, and this? Didn't I do all these things? Didn't I obey? And the very tendency that we have to do that is the evidence that we need to know that part of the reason we do it is because we're trying to store up points that God is going to have to accept in exchange for our failure. And this is a problem that good people have. This is a problem that religious people have. People who are coming from non-religious backgrounds, people who come from backgrounds that are pretty much universally accepted as, yeah, that wasn't smart and that wasn't good, they have the benefit of knowing they have no bargaining chips. And what are they going to say to God? Okay, God, here's what I'm going to do for you now. I'm going to give you my collection of empty Jack Daniels bottles. Um, you know, it's just, they just know. They, they don't have anything to bargain with. And so when the gospel comes and is presented to them, they realize this is good news. This is the only hope that they have. They have nothing to bargain with, and they receive mercy because they believe the promise of God, and that alone is their only hope. Whereas religious people have a tendency to believe, to think that's great, it becomes their Aflac policy. You know, I'm already insured because I'm good, but this grace thing, that's even better. Now I have both. And Paul is pointing out the tendency, not only for the Jewish people, but for religious people, then as well as today, to stumble over the gospel. Because deep down, we want it to be about religion. We want to be judged on our merits while ignoring our demerits. Or to be considered that our merits are outweighing our demerits. And what Paul is pointing out, which is true not only in the book of Romans, but throughout all of the scripture, because he's pointing out what's been said even to the prophets. It's that it's always been by grace that we are saved through faith in God's promise. And God's promise has always been to send a redeemer. And so prior to the cross, people were believing in the promise of the Messiah who would be the substitute. And after the resurrection, we believe in the one who has been sent, who died, and who rose again. And we see it evident here in the text. Because Paul, at the end of this passage... In verse 32 and 33, he says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone 
as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. And we know that this is referring to Jesus. It's a prophecy of Jesus because in Mark chapter 12, I believe it's chapter 12, that we're told that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and that is Christ Jesus himself. And God has sent Jesus Christ to be the stone that's rejected by the builders, the religious people, the ones who were contracted in order to to, to build uh, the kingdom of God. They kind of threw him aside because they didn't like the way that it worked. He wasn't validating their own goodness, but he was reminding them of their own flaws because the law that they were appealing to, they were looking at and saying, look how good I look today, and ignoring that it also exposed that their hair was a mess, that they're, you know, they needed a shave, and that was just the women. And that was, you know, that's just... There were flaws that they were just overlooking that were in the mirror. The law, we're told, is a mirror that we are to look into that exposes what needs to be addressed. But they only looked at the good. I I saw a cartoon, I've seen it a few times, but a cartoon that has the difference between men and women. In their middle age, men look into the mirror and think that they look like they were 20, the chest and whatever, and women who are beautiful look into the mirror and they only see their flaws. Well, that's the religious people. Good people are like the foolish man. And so when Christ came, he was offensive to them because in his perfection, he wasn't acting like them. He wasn't validating them for how good they were. He was calling them to repent and to believe and to trust in him. And that did not validate the religion or their own agenda, so they set him aside. And then when they come upon him, as God puts him back in the path, he, there's no one that comes to the Father except by him. So as they're trying to get to God, they trip all over Jesus because he's not doing things their way. But the other people, the people who didn't have any pretensions of their own goodness, saw the rock as a fortress in whom they could hide. They would bring them security, safety, strength, and stability. And they believed the promises. And they lived in that way. And so Paul is answering the objections, and yet he's exposing an awful lot in us. And he's saying the gospel is something totally different. It's not a better religion. It's not, a, it's not an Affleck policy for your failed religion. It is something totally different, and it's always been the plan. The purpose for the people of Israel was to allow and for Christ to come through them. There were a lot of other purposes there, too, as God shows how he relates. As Hosea came, we see the nature of God and the way they related to the, these wayward people that thought they were good but really were unfaithful, people like us. And he's saying that it's not that the answer is, you know, go and do things that are not good because he calls those who are in sin, which is every one of us, to repent even as we believe, to acknowledge our need, and then to believe. So what are we to do with all of this? I want to ask a couple of questions. Make sure it's a series of questions. The first question is this, in your mind, what does God owe you? 
Now, I know your first response, because we're sitting here in church and I've already just preached at you for a while, is, well, God owes me nothing. God is God. And, okay? What I mean by this is, what is it that makes you frustrated or disappointed with God when you don't get it in your life? Because, you know, you've done this, 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 and this. You've tried to be good, and God, I don't have that. Maybe it's a level of prosperity or at least financial security. I work hard, I've tried really hard, but maybe it's a relationship. I've been good. Lord, I just want a godly man to be a husband, and, you know, to live according to the way that you want us to live, and you're not pulling your end of the bargain. It's important that we recognize that every one of us has these things that we think that God owes us, even though we know that he doesn't. But it's necessary that we recognize not only that we do, but recognize what they are. The second question is, what do you do? Or what do you tend to do to try to put God into your debt? What do you appeal to as the basis that God needs to do his part. I mean, it could be any number of things. You know, I, I try to be good. I double down on my Bible reading. You know, I've got to read through the Bible in a year. I don't do every week, but you know what? If I, every, every day, but when I miss, I, you know, I double and triple up the next day. Spend more time in prayer. What are the things that you do when you really, really, really want something and you want God to come through for you? What is it that you do thinking that your doing is going to somehow move God to do what you want, to get him in your debts? And then related to that first question, it then causes frustration when God doesn't do things the way that you want. The picture of this in the scripture is Jesus' parable of the two brothers you know the story, usually it's referred to as the prodigal son, where the son runs off and he gets everything, and the other son, who has stayed and worked and been seemingly faithful, uh, is, um, you know, off sulking. And when the father comes to him and he says, all these years I've slaved for you. Well, right there, that's a signal to anybody who's a counselor, huh, there's a dysfunction in that family. I've slaved for you. You know, you didn't do it because you loved. You didn't feel loved. You've only been trying to get something and you want to try to deserve it. And when, and nobody's even taken anything from you. We're just throwing a party because your brother's coming back and you're ticked off. Yeah, that might cut into your inheritance a little bit, but your brother's back. And the older brother is a picture of religious people who labor and labor and labor and do good things and always keep the rules and then are frustrated with God because God doesn't act the way that they want to act. That is many of us. And so what does God owe you, and what do you tend to do in order to get God into your debt? Third question is, what is your real motive? Do you want to live as godly people who receive grace and the favor of God because of faith alone? Or do you want to be the religious people who can put God in your debt? And that may sound like a complicated question, so I'm going to ask another, I'm going to use an illustration and ask a question to illustrate this. 
Some of you have heard me use this illustration before. I don't know that I've used it from the pulpit here, but just imagine your parents and you have a daughter. Now, you have the choice. You can have a daughter who you raise to be pure in every external way, who does not engage in any of the things that would compromise reputation or even God's standards. And in doing all of the right things, she is confident of her own goodness and purity. Or you can have a daughter who has gone off the rails, has engaged in things that have broken your heart, have created scandal, and leave lifelong scars. And yet, broken, she pleads and knows that her only hope is the grace of God, and she is clinging to God's grace for sinners. Which daughter do you want? Now, I've had this conversation a number of times, and so let me tell you how it usually goes. Well, why a daughter? Why not a son? Because you don't care about your son. Because, you know, your son gets a few scrapes and scars. The fact is, our culture, that doesn't, it doesn't bother you. Your daughter's precious to you, so leave your son out of this. Well, why can't I have a daughter who does good and believes in Jesus? And at which point, I'm going to say this. Because don't you realize the question has absolutely nothing to do with your daughter? It has to do with what do you value? Do you value goodness and rest in that? Or are you cultivating your children in your own life, recognizing your own brokenness and your own need, and cultivating that so that we have faith and trust in the glorious grace of our God? And you can't have it both ways because your motive is either one or the other. You're either going to be religious, you're going to be good, or you recognize you're part of the bad and the ugly, and yet you are made beautiful because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise here is very clear. Those who have him, at the end, I'm laying a stone, a stumbling stone, a rock, but whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And Paul is saying here, look, good people, it's good that you're good, but it matters nothing. But... God is God. God has the right to be God. God chooses who belongs to him. From the very beginning, he's laid this out and recognizing your own tendency, repent of your own goodness, recognizing that that alienates you from God. That itself becomes sin when you use it as a measure of God. And stand and be amazed at the love of God for unfaithful people like us, for the bad and the ugly. He says, Watch, because I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you good by faith, by grace, by the power of his spirit in conformity with his word. Father, we thank you for this word, painful though it may be, but pray that we would hear it, that it would shape the way we think, that we would be able to see ourselves clearly and that it would move us from striving because... Our striving is useless. But lead us to cling to the one who has left us, who has given his life for us, the stone who has broken us, but who also makes us whole, Christ Jesus our King. To him be all glory, now and forever, in the church and throughout the world. Amen.